You are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. My co-host and guest today, and I think that's a first, uh, is Bob Trapani, Jr., Executive Director of the American Lighthouse Foundation. Hi, Bob. Hi, Jeremy. How are you? I'm doing pretty well, thanks. How's the holiday season going for you so far, Bob? It's going well. Not done shopping yet, but it's it's coming along. And I know the clock is <laughs> yeah. ticking, so <laughs> we'll yeah. be under the gun. Yeah, good luck with that. People, are, I think, are going to be hearing this. Uh, this episode is going to be posted on December 31st, New Year's Eve, but we're actually speaking on December 11th, just so people know if they're hearing you on December 31st and thinking, wow, we better get a shopping started. <laughs> Time travel. Yeah, right, right. Uh, so thank you so much for doing this, Bob. I really appreciate it. You've, of course, been on the podcast several times in the past. You've co-hosted, you've been a guest, uh, all kinds, and you've helped with some of the interviews. You, I don't know how many times you've been involved with it, but quite a bit. And any regular listeners know uh, that, uh, you know, they might remember that in addition to being the executive director of the American Lighthouse Foundation, you're also a, a lighthouse technician for the Coast Guard Auxiliary. And I uh, have known you for, we've known each other for, I think, more than 20 years now. And I know very well that you are an aficionado of aids to navigation of all kinds. And that would include our subject today, which is day beacons. Would you agree with that? That you're aficionado of all all uh, aids to navigation? I would agree with that. And yeah, day beacons are are one of my favorite subjects. So we're going mm-hmm. to talk about that today. It's going to be a lot of fun. All these types of uh, topics we discuss on the uh, podcast are always fun. And I learn just as much as I can share something. I learn a lot too from them. So uh, I'm looking forward to this one. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate the fact that you uh, do look at the broader scope of not just lighthouses, but but all aids to navigation. And you have that viewpoint of actually having serviced a lot of these places as a, as a technician uh, with the Coast Guard Auxiliary. Well, they all mm-hmm. share a common thread, and then they were all established to protect and save lives. So, Right. Yeah. In a way, uh, you could refer to day beacons as kind of unsung siblings of lighthouses. Does that sound right? Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, again, today's topic is day beacons. And I think people so people use different terms for these structures that we're talking about. You'll hear them referred to as day marks sometimes. But to me, that's a little confusing because uh, you've also got the day marks of lighthouses, which is basically the paint scheme uh, that gives them their their daytime appearance. And certain lighthouses, like the ones on the Outer Banks in North Carolina, have very famous day marks, Cape Hatteras having a black and white uh, spiral barber pole type stripe. Some have red stripes, et cetera, et cetera. So we're not talking about those, but we're talking about uh, historic day beacons, which uh, I would differentiate from modern day beacons, which are are largely kind of nondescript structures with, uh, do you call them day boards on them that might have a number or some kind of identifying mark on them. What's the difference between these older historic day beacons? Some of them are 200 years old or more, and the the modern Coast Guard day beacons. Well, I think uh, technology played a bit of a role in our modern uh, day beacons, where we have the ability to uh, establish these things a little more cost effective. I think historically, uh, the way the uh, lighthouse establishment at the time looked at them, they like lighthouses. They they seem to want to build some type of quote structure on mm-hmm. these sites. 
And originally, a lot of these structures were established mainly at the entrances of harbors and uh, and rivers versus where they were eventually the, the lighthouse service and then later the Coast Guard extended that out to many uh, sunken ledges and half-tide ledges. We'll get into that a little bit later. Um, that went beyond the entrances to where um, you know ports and things of that nature were. So uh, originally, the structures were actually looking back quite impressive, really, when we look at them. They're, they're unique. We know we'll talk about some of the ones that exist today uh, that harken back to another time. But uh, mm-hmm. uh, I, I think it just stemmed from the fact that the Lighthouse Service just needed to have something substantial to mark some of these uh, original dangers. Right. Uh, and I haven't actually said it, but just to be clear, so people know what we're talking about, a general definition of a day beacon would be an unlighted nautical sea mark. Uh, and uh, so these are things that were established to be seen during the day to aid navigation, uh, as opposed to a, a lighted lighthouse or other lighted structure. And it's uh, interesting to know that uh, day beacons were really part of the original act uh, of Congress uh, in uh, on August 7th, 1789, that set up the original lighthouse establishment under the, the Treasury Department. The, uh, the text of that act said uh, that it was an act for the establishment and support of lighthouses, beacons, buoys, and public piers. So by beacons, I, I assume they must have meant uh, unlighted day beacons. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I, I interpret that the same way. And I think, too, when we think about we uh, lighthouses and their importance, we think about that light and that fog signal, uh, which is incredibly true, of course. But I think what we don't understand is a lot of um, maritime traffic and a lot of local fishing. A lot of it occurred during the day, and a lot of boats were back in harbor by nightfall. So day beacons, um, they presided. Like I know here in Maine, there's a lot of ledges that they're called half-tide ledges. So as that tide recedes, that ledge starts to become more and more profound until low tide, and you're just stunned by the amount of ledge that is is, uh, exposed. But at high tide, that ledge may be covered only by a few feet of water, and if you're unsuspectingly coming through there, and so many vessels did, they would ground on these types of of hazards, uh, which is what made day beacons so valuable to uh, the lighthouse establishment. And also because in some areas, they, they're just, it was more feasible to establish or just uh, more cost effective as well. Just to set things up here, this this episode of the podcast is different from usual because usually I'm interviewing somebody, I'm asking questions and they're answering. That's not how we're doing it today. You and I are going to go kind of back and forth. I know that you've uh, become quite uh, knowledgeable about some of the day beacons, and especially in Maine, where you live and where the American Lighthouse Foundation is based. Uh, I have some personal experience with some of the day beacons in Massachusetts. I lived much of my life in Massachusetts and have kind of a personal relationship with, with some of these places. So uh, we're going to more or less go back and forth on this, uh, and uh, we'll see how it works out. And uh, so I don't know if you want to start, Bob, by saying a little bit about the the some the earliest day beacons were that we're aware of in this part. Sure, of the and I think. What do you think, Jeremy? If we start maybe by where we'll say day beacons were upgraded to lighthouses, some of those sites. Why don't we start there? Because that might be that might make some sense to to do that. Yeah, um, there's at least three of those that come to mind off the top of my head. But yeah, you you uh, you, you gave me a third one today, but we know uh, Boone Island 
uh, before the lighthouse was established. Uh, a day beacon, a wooden day beacon, was established there in 1799. And it lasted till about 1804 when a big storm came in. And anybody who's seen Boone Island knows that that's, that's not very high above sea level. So you can imagine waves coming in there and really uh, wrecking any wooden structure that might be on that islet really is really what it is. And so when that one was destroyed, um, they rebuilt a day beacon there. Uh, we don't know what it looked like, but is about it was probably around the 50-foot mark because they tried to make these uh, day beacons a certain size, uh, I think from visibility for how far away they wanted the mariner to be able to see them. And this one was a stone, and it had a, a, a little event attached to that. You, you can say something about that, Jeremy. Yeah, as you said, the the original, I guess the original one was was wood, right? Built in 1799. The well, that's not the earliest one we know about. I know I do know of one earlier one that we'll mention in a moment here. But uh, so, as you said, it survived until 1804. Destroyed in a storm. A stone beacon was then built in 1805, the summer of 1805. And according to what I found, uh, three of the workers involved in erecting that 1805 tower actually drowned when their boat capsized as they were leaving the island. I just want to clarify for anybody listening. I think most of our listeners who are lighthouse buffs know about Boone Island. It's a pretty famous light station. For for people who don't, it's about, uh, depending on which point of land you're talking about, approximately eight miles off the coast of uh, Kittery and York, Maine and southern Maine. Uh, and it was considered one of the most isolated light stations later when a lighthouse was built there it was a pretty difficult place to be a keeper just a little pile of rocks out in the ocean there as you said very low lying so that day beacon survived till 1811 when the congress finally built a lighthouse the first of three lighthouses there is yep. that correct on that that is correct yeah so, 1811 yeah. 1831 i think second one then 1855 yes yeah so that and, that was one lighthouse that came after a day beacon. Another one was at Cape Elizabeth at two mm -hmm. lights. Uh, in fact, the uh, the existing East Towers were built. East Tower was built upon the site of the original stone monument that was built as a day beacon for ships and marine traffic coming into Portland Harbor in 1811. And that one, Jeremy, that one's listed as a 50 foot stone black and white pyramidal stone day beacon. I wonder mm -hmm. if it. It sounds very much. Like the structure that was at is still at Little Mark Island. I think so. I've seen drawings. I think they're kind of speculative drawings showing because they showing they also it. mentioned that it was black and white in color, so similar to what Little Mark Island was. So that's mm -hmm. interesting. Uh, we can't know for sure, but that's certainly because Little Mark Island was established oh in eighteen twenty three. So it was a right. it was a few years later. But, yeah. Uh, and if people, uh, some of our listeners may have heard last week's podcast episode, which is a, a talk with uh, Ford Reiki, owner of Halfway Rock Lighthouse in Casco Bay, who was uh, applying for ownership of Little Mark Island, and you took part in that as well. So if people want to hear more about Little Mark Island, that would be a good uh, episode for them to listen to last week's. Before you can, before you mentioned the third lighthouse you're aware of with this, Jeremy, I, I, these are my thoughts on it. When I when I look back and I see how these sites had day beacons upgraded to lighthouses, uh, I, I think uh, I look at it as a as a stepping stone for the government at the time, not necessarily being able to afford the construction of all these lighthouses at one time. The day mm -hmm. beacons much more affordable to establish, and then as time went by, uh, obviously because both Boone Island and Cape Elizabeth historically are are 
incredibly important as aids to navigation. So I don't think that would have ever been viewed differently. I just, almost looking back, it was like this was our step by step to get to those lighthouses when our lighthouse establishment was in its infancy. Before the day beacons at Boone Island and and Cape Elizabeth, as you were just talking about, uh, there is one earlier one I know of that was later replaced by a lighthouse that would have been at Baker's Island uh, in Salem, Massachusetts. And uh, I believe it was 1792 that beacon was established uh, by order of the Salem Marine Society. And if I remember right, there's uh, the documents at the time, I spelled it Bakken, I think, B-A-C-K-O-N, Bakken on, on Baker's, on Backers Island. <laughs> uh, Bakken on Backers Island is how they stated it. Of course, in the, those days, spelling tended to uh, be different in different, different sources for the same thing. But anyway, yeah, they built a day beacon there in 1792. I don't think we have much of a description of what it looked like, just it was an unlighted beacon. But then the uh, t- a twin light station or two light station was established there just a few years later. So they, I think the day beacon had a short life there. So the reverse of that is uh, an example of where they wanted to establish a lighthouse. Congress was asked to establish a lighthouse, but did not, uh, was on an island in uh, Penobscot Bay along Muscle Ridge called Otter Island. And this one was in 1904 uh, when the outcry came for a lighthouse, uh, when the steamer city of Rockland wrecked uh, nearby on uh, Upper Gangway Ledge. And there was a lot of people and freight aboard. Fortunately, uh, people were, everybody was saved from that, but the, it was a precarious situation where the steamers was up on a ledge and, and very at a bad angle. Uh, so at that point, they asked Congress to establish, this is 1906, to establish a lighthouse on Otter Island. And like so many times in, in history for lighthouses, this would these requests would go in year after year after year. So these this request must have went in four or five years, and there was no action. In the meantime, private citizens decided to establish a fog bell at Otter Island as they waited for Congress to act. So you have this private aid, this fog bell that was used. But in the end, Congress uh, chose not to um, and established instead a spindle, a day beacon there on Otter Island in its place. So so it also worked in the other way where lighthouses never were established at a site. For whatever reason, Congress didn't deem that one worthy mm-hmm. enough for a lighthouse. And it's kind of stuck because uh, anybody who's familiar with Muscle Ridge, which is really the protected passageway, Penobscot Bay, to, uh, that begins at Whitehead Island Light and ends at Owlshead Light. It's like a nine-mile stretch. Well, Otter Island somewhere right in the middle, and it is just fraught with all kinds of ledges and things of that nature, danger. So it was, but yet... Uh, shipping traffic steamers loved it because it was protected and it and it, sh- and it really sh- shaved off a lot of their travel time too if if they had to go all the way around. So, but like anything, uh, we know that our lighthouse service in the early years was not was not all that. Um, how would I say? They didn't spend a lot of money. Or, yeah, partly the, because we didn't have it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, go ahead, Jeremy. I'll let, what, well, I was going to just going to say, I think a lot of people know that people have looked at all at Lighthouse history. You know, it was under the Treasury Department and a, a certain uh, official in the Treasury Department, Stephen Pleasanton, is kind of uh, known as sort of the Ebenezer Scrooge of lighthouses in, the, in that that era. He was in charge for how many how many years was it? Thirty two. I, I think it was from yeah. 1820 to 1852. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, but he was he was just doing what he was paid to to do, which was to save money for the government. Um, so lighthouses were 
if they were built at all, they, they resisted building them in a lot of places. And uh, when they were built, they were built cheaply, as cheaply as possible, which meant they, they weren't right. very well. Yeah, and, and yeah. you know, Pleasanton gets a, is a, gets a black eye uh, in history for that. I, I don't really think it was all his fault. I, I think you're right. I think he was doing his job. I think uh, um, there were a lot of people that he returned money to the treasury every year. I think that was that was commended by people. It's just that, unfortunately, he was more of a bureaucrat. He had really little knowledge in marine affairs, which as the world, Europe and other places were uh, expanding their ability to protect shipping, he resisted. So mm-hmm. we know, we're familiar, a lot of people are familiar with the 1843 report uh, by IWP Lewis, uh, who was a civil engineer. And he he did a lot of reports on the lighthouse conditions of lighthouses from Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and Maine. But he also uh, he also looked at day beacons as well. And I want to have a quote. Uh, I want to read a quote from IWP in the 1843 report that says, "Quote: The shores of Maine are different from any other portion of the United States in the peculiarity of conformation produced by innumerable indents and deep bays." filled with immense groups of rocky islets. Fogs of uncommon density are frequent and long duration on this coast, often suspending all navigation for a week or more. The great rise of tides and consequently rapidity of currents also present difficulties to the seamen, but the greatest danger arises from the host of sunken ledges that everywhere abound in the midst of the largest bays in the narrowest channels or offshore at distance of some miles. The entire coast of Maine being a rock formation, the soundings are deep and irregular, the approaches are abrupt, the use of the lead little resorted to and by no means a safe guide as on the gradually sloping bottom of Massachusetts Bay on our southern coast. Hence the necessity of lights, beacons, and buoys of the most efficient character, as well as charts of undoubted accuracy, end quote. And I think what he was finding was similar to what he found with the lighthouses, A, the contractors that were being used to build these original day beacons, uh, they did not they did not build them well. There was politics involved, and for whatever reason, Mr. Pleasanton resisted engineering. He just did not have qualified civil engineers to construct these structures, and we know that based on uh, not only in the lighthouses but um, also going further with uh, IWP's report. It brings up the idea of Stage Island Day Beacon, which is uh, really marking Winter Harbor there off of Bitterford Pool at the mouth of the Saco River. Uh, nearby is Wood Island Lighthouse, for those familiar with Wood Island Lighthouse. But the idea that um, these structures were not built properly in the first place, I'm going to quote IWP Lewis here and say, quote, by adopting the square and triangular base for these structures, they are frequently demolished by floating ice, grinding against the angles and dislodging the masonry. Some of the beacons are merely a cobwork of granite blocks. No preparation is made for a foundation or by leveling the site for the reception of the base course of masonry. But like the lighthouse towers, they are erected on the natural surface, uneven or not, as the case may be. It was in consequence of neglecting this essential part of the work that a contractor employed to erect the beacon at Winter Harbor Stage Island near Saco River lost his life, one half the base resting on the shelf of a rock, the other on gravel and sand. And when the structure was nearly completed, it fell owing to the settlement of the base courses in the gravel and buried the unfortunate contractor in the ruins, end quote. Yeah. So 
there was obviously some consequences too. Uh, you know, obviously that wasn't all the time, but there was a case by not uh, employing the proper knowledge to construct these structures. In this case, a contractor perished. Yeah. Uh, just a little side thing that I think, again, anybody who's looked at lighthouse history might know this, but uh, you just quoted from the report, 1843, very important report by the engineer IWP Lewis, report to Congress about the state of the lighthouses. Uh, his uncle was Winslow Lewis, who was a contractor who built a number of early lighthouses and also provided the lighting apparatus for all the lighthouses for a while. And he's sort of seen as another villain in lighthouse history because his uh, he was basically undercut everybody else with his, his bids and also seemed to be friends with Stephen Pleasant and the guy in charge. So a lot of uh, Winslow Lewis's lighthouses were not very well built. Only a, a few survive. Just a little aside there. But uh, moving along, uh, this point, maybe, maybe I could say a little bit about one of the earliest day marks that actually still survives in New England. That would be Nix's Mate in Boston Harbor. We don't have... I. As far as I know, we don't have an exact date for when it was built, but it was early 1800s. It's a it's, it's familiar to anybody who's boated uh, around Boston Harbor, maybe taken the sightseeing cruises around there. You can see it from points on shore, but it's best seen from a boat. It's kind of right in the middle of Boston Harbor, uh, right in the near the main shipping channel there, and it's very distinctive visually. It's a it's a pyramidal cone type structure on this uh, square with, with a square stone wall kind of platform around it. And it's on a, a small island. But interestingly, that island was once once much bigger. The island, they say, was once about 12 acres. But all it is now is a little, little uh, outcropping of sand and rock. I guess it was partly the action of the, the tides and the, the weather and everything that wore it away. But also there was slate on the island and the slate was gathered for building materials and that helped the island kind of wash away over the years. And there's a famous legend about Nix's Mate that predates the, the marker there. Uh, it's uh, often cited to, to uh, explain the, the name Nix's Mate. The story goes that there was a ship coming into Boston Harbor. The captain was named Nix, N-I-X. Uh, and uh, the captain was mysteriously murdered. The first mate was arrested. He was charged with the crime. They did a quick trial, probably not much of a trial. Again, this is probably all, all legend anyway, but he was sentenced to be hanged, and they took him out to the island, uh, and uh, as they're about to hang him, he proclaimed his innocence. He said he, he didn't do the crime, uh, and he said, to prove my innocence, this island will disappear. And it virtually has disappeared. So that part is true. But uh, the whole story about the captain named, named Nixon, everything is probably not true. It uh, more likely, as cited by the, the marine historian uh, Edward Rowe Snow, took its name from Dutch, meaning something like uh, the, the uh, whale of the water spirits, something along those lines. So that's more likely where it came from. But it's a pretty famous legend. So uh, the land... Uh, the the island when they decided to put a, a day beacon on it the island was actually uh seeded or uh, bought uh by the commonwealth by the state of massachusetts from thomas knox who was a keeper at the time of boston light uh so it's interesting that he was keeper from something like 1794 into the the early 1800s so he 
sold or I don't know if it's actually sold. I think he just gave the the island to the government and they built the marker there in the early uh, 1800s for $7,000, which was pretty expensive for the time. I think a lot of the early lighthouses built in that period weren't that expensive. So I don't know why it cost so much, but it was a difficult place to build. So again, they built the stone wall with a, a wooden day beacon in the middle uh, and closed by that wall. And uh, eventually a, a layer of concrete was added on top of the, the wooden marker there. And uh, I'm not sure when they originally did it, but it a, has a very distinctive black and white day mark. Because of partly because of that, I think kind of uh, macabre legend attached to it, and also the fact that before the beacon there, apparently some pirates are buried on the island. Uh, it has kind of a, a macabre uh, feel about it, and uh, almost uh, foreboding when you see it. Uh, think about those those uh, those legends, or but it is, it is a fact. It's not just a legend. It's a fact that some pirates were buried there, and at least one, William Fly, who was a very famous pirate was gibbeted or gib i think it's gibbeted rather than gibbeted uh which means his remains were displayed to warn away other pirates which again is kind of kind of macabre and kind of gruesome but they used to do things like that so the interesting history to the island so the marker anyway has survived uh, all that time it's still there it was in terrible condition i actually went out there with a group to Nix's mate. Uh, I was involved at the time. I lived in Winthrop, Mass at the time, right on Boston Harbor. And I was involved with friends of the Boston Harbor Islands. And a group, I think it was about 30 of us, went out in like a landing craft and pulled a, a low tide. We we're able to get the craft up on the, the sandbar there at Nix's mate. We all, uh, there are like stairs on, this, on one side of it. And we went up to the top of the stone wall. And uh, to my surprise, I discovered that the at the time, the marker was kind of tilted to one side. And it was open at the bottom on one side, and you could actually crawl under it and up inside the the day beacon, which I did. Uh, I don't know if I could do it now. <laughs> I was more limber then, but I was able to crawl in there, and I was surprised it was hollow inside. You could see that old wooden framework from the original wooden structure, which I found extremely interesting. But because it was tilting and it was in such bad shape, in uh, 2001, the Coast Guard uh, had it restored. $240,000. I'm kind of amazed. I don't know if that would happen now. The Coast Guard would put $240,000 into the restoration of a, an old day beacon like that. But uh, that was done in the fall of uh, 2001. Interestingly, the company that did that was Atlantic Mechanical Incorporated. Some people might know the, the two replica lighthouses in the harbor of uh, Burlington, Vermont on Lake Champlain. The same company built those. Uh, so anyway, so it's in good shape now. And uh, as I said, I'm sure very familiar to a lot of people uh, traveling around Boston Harbor. Well, you know, you attached, uh, there's a, some of these legends attached to these uh, day beacons, which is, is fascinating. I think just the same, uh, they're peculiar shapes and uh, um, what they're made of. It is it's amazing to think that sometimes the community becomes more, if I can say this with, without, it does, I, they become more attached to some of these day beacons and they may even the lighthouses, they give them nicknames. Um, they're just things that uh, depending on where they're located, they're passing more frequently than maybe a, a, a nearby lighthouse. And, and so you find over time that day beacons actually are very endearing to, to these uh, coastal communities who really much care that they are still there. So I find that interesting looking back. Yeah. yeah I would say uh, Nix's mate is probably better known to, people in that area than some of the lighthouses in the in the region 
Long Island headlight uh, on Long Island to Boston Harbor is almost completely hidden by trees. So I can guarantee you there's a lot of people who have, you know, taken boats around Boston Harbor who know what Nix's mate is, but they they don't might not even even notice the Long, Long Island headlight house because you can barely see it. So Nix's mate is extremely well known in that area. Yeah. yeah any of the day beacons that uh, precede the uh, really the 1870s, uh, the ones that still survive. They are, I, I can, I know personally, I can look at them and just go, wow, they just, you know, you're looking at something old. You're looking at something that was once deemed very important. Even if today we don't attach the uh, navigational importance to these day beacons as they once did, but historically as structures, some of these old ones are very valuable as surviving examples of, of day beacons. I think before we move on, Jeremy, maybe it would be good for our listeners to kind of go and look very quickly at how day beacons really progressed in history. So originally, a lot of them were these granite stone structures that were built up either as, um, you know, in almost like pyramidal fashion or um, maybe tall columns. But eventually, day beacons actually went to what they call spindles. And when I refer to a spindle, I'm talking about really just an iron pole that would have been um, placed into usually either rock ledge or mud. In most cases, it was rock ledge. And then on top of that, the early day beacons to distinguish them, they used a variety of methods uh, that we would look at today and say almost it's archaic, but because today we have our day boards with numbers and colors of, of red and green. But back then, um, they used things like large, what, what I would call almost um, birdcage type of uh, top marks. Uh, also on top of some day beacons, they would have established like almost what looked like a wagon wheel. And from that wagon wheel, they would have these iron pendants that would come down. And there was other means of, of distinguishing which day beacon you were looking at based on what they would have called its top mark and how that was different. Some had casks atop of it. Uh, it was really, it, it's a fascinating history to look back to, to, a, to have the mariner be able to distinguish where they were from. No different than looking at a lighthouse and saying the light's characteristic is flashing four seconds or sound signal sounds every 10 seconds. Well, you needed to distinguish these day beacons as well. And, and their top marks and the various ways they created them were a way of distinguishing those uh, day beacons. And then as far as what IWP Lewis was talking about in terms of you know, there weren't a lot of day beacons across these many ledges throughout uh, larger bodies of water. Uh, we do see, looking back in history, it was about the 1872 to 74 time period when the uh, Lighthouse Service started to really make a concerted effort to establish what we would now refer to as spindles on a lot more dangerous ledges that existed. And I think that coincided with, uh, as steamer traffic to a lot of these areas continued to increase, they needed to find cost-effective ways to safeguard that, and, and these spindles were perfect for that kind of application. Uh, and again, when we talk about a lot of these vessels, they are they were transiting these waters almost exclusively um, by day hours. Uh, it would have a lot of times they might have even put into harbor in the evening, depending on where they were going. It's not to say that later they weren't transiting by night because a lot of vessels did, but many did not. And so the day beacons were really important to mark these dangers. As you're speaking, I was thinking, uh, we're talking about day beacons in the northeastern U.S., mostly in Maine and Massachusetts. But if anybody listening uh, knows about similar structures, historic day beacons rather than the modern ones put up by the Coast Guard, 
historic day beacons in other parts of the country, like uh, the southern East Coast or the West Coast or the Great Lakes. Uh, I really don't know of those existing in other parts of the country outside of the Northeast. But if if people know, email me at jeremy at uslhs.org. I would love to hear about them. So uh, at this point, I was thinking maybe a good one to, to mention would be one that's uh, used to be uh, until pretty recently in uh, officially within the Salem, Massachusetts and the approach to the harbor there. Uh, it's the it was the uh, Bowditch uh, ledge beacon. Uh, I've always pronounced it Bowditch, B-O-W-D-I-T-C-H, but I've heard people pronounce it Bowditch as well. I'm not sure which is correct, but people may have heard of Captain Nathaniel Bowditch, who was a really important navigator and author of what's considered kind of a, a Bible of navigation, the New American Practical Navigator, uh, published in uh, 1802. He was a, really a genius. I was reading about his, his amazing life. Uh, he was a, as a kid at the age of 15, he designed a barometer and a sundial, and he produced a very accurate uh, navigational almanac at the age of 15, <laughs> which is pretty amazing. Uh, and he was second mate on a ship by the time he was 21. Uh, he took an existing book, uh, The Practical Navigator. He found a lot of errors in it, so he completely rewrote it and published it himself in 1802. And a lot of it is about uh, celestial navigation, navigation by the moon and sun, uh, and uh, a lot of you know the the, uh, the techniques he he described still still work as well now as they they did then. So it's a really important work. But the ledge beacon, the Bowditch ledge day beacon, was not named for him. It was actually named for his great grandfather, who was uh, had a shipwreck there. Uh, Bowditch, the uh, elder Bowditch's great grandfather, William Bowditch, was uh, captain of many ships. He was the captain of the Essex galley in 1700 and went aground at, at uh, what was then known as Tenapu Reef, a Native American name, and was then renamed Bowditch Ledge for him uh, after that. I don't think it was a really disastrous wreck, but the ship did go aground there. Uh, and uh, William Bowditch, by the way, was born in England in 1664. But So Ledge was named for him. Uh, and eventually the marker, the stone marker was put on there to help mark the the approach to Salem Harbor there. It's kind of near uh, Great Misery Island. The, the islands around there was the Misery Islands, which is a great name because of all the shipwrecks there, and uh, about a mile off the coast of Beverly. It's not far from Baker's Island Lighthouse, but I saw that beacon many times, the uh, the Bowditch Ledge beacon uh, cruises around there. It was a very familiar sight. Again, anybody uh, who has boated around Salem Sound there knows uh, remembers the Bowditch Ledge Beacon, but sadly, it actually it toppled in a storm in November of 2018. It was uh, pretty rough. I saw the stones kind of separating, and it looked uh, in danger for quite a while, and then finally it fell over. There's no, uh, apparently, the stones, the large granite blocks that was built over were never, there was no mortar or anything. There was nothing holding them together. It was just a pile of stone blocks, so it's no wonder it fell over. But anyway, it's it's certainly there's now there's just a pile of rocks there, which is somewhat of a hindrance to navigation. But inter some interesting history with that one. Well, I'd like to talk about Fiddler's Ledge Monument, and that one is located. Jeremy, I know you're familiar with it, but that is located at the western entrance to the Fox Island Thoroughfare in Penobscot Bay. And for those folks who who are aware of Brown's Head Lighthouse, that is nearby Fiddler's Ledge. So that gives you some kind of idea geographically. But this is one of the older 
uh, day beacons established in Maine, and it was established in the 1820s. Um, but like a lot of these day beacons, uh, they even these granite ones, uh, because they were not well built, if they took on a heavy sea, uh, they would be destroyed and then, of course, have to be rebuilt. This particular one was actually destroyed in, in 1878 uh, due to a what they called sea and ice damage to it. So uh, today, I know when we look at a Penobscot Bay, we won't see any ice out there. But back then, there was ice in the bay. And when you had a sea and all that ice pounding up against it, of course, with structures not uh, well built, they're going to topple over. And Fiddler's Ledge did topple over. So when the Lighthouse Service rebuilt it in the 1879-1880 time period, they increased its dimensions and uh, built it up to a height of 35 feet. And it's been standing there ever since. Although when you look at it today, I can see a slight lean to it. And there's a couple granite blocks that are missing from it. Uh, but really, the uh, I know the local communities over there in North Haven and Vinyl Haven on the islands there, they love Fiddler's Ledge. They affectionately call it the monument. And people ask, you know, how did it get its name? And that's always an interesting one. I don't think we can ever know the answer to a lot of these things. Uh, but there's two different stories of how Fiddler's Ledge got its name. And one of them was uh, by author L. Whitney Elkins in the book called The Story of Maine, Coastal Maine. He says that the, um, the quote, the people hereabout, so we have heard it of ear, tell their children and credulous travelers that in old times, a drunken captain ran his vessel on these rocks and fiddled merrily as the ship pounded against the ledge. And when she at length floated off immediately, she ran up to the drunkard and went down, end quote. Drunkard's Ledge is another day beacon we'll talk about. So in this case, they're talking about a captain who grounds on there and fiddles his way off till the high tide comes again and he can float off. But in the Cruising Guide to Maine by uh, Don Johnson, he has a different version of it. He says, quote, the name for this ledge was probably supplied by one of many stone cutters from Ireland who worked in the nearby quarries during the mid-1800s. In Celtic lore, fiddlers are associated with fairies and sailors who die, particularly if they die at sea, are said to go to Fiddler's Green. Tripping your keel on Fiddler's Ledge could send you to Fiddler's Green, end quote. Mm -hmm. Wow. So I don't know how Fiddler's Ledge got its name, but there's two possibilities there. So that, I thought that was interesting. Interesting, too. Another thing with uh, with these day beacons uh, in the last, I'd say the last two years, uh, specifically, the Coast Guard's making a more concerted effort to uh, decommission some of these day beacons. Just uh, they're not as needed for navigation or not as deemed as needed for navigation as they once were. And Fiddler's Ledge and so many others are on that list uh, as being advertised to be decommissioned. So though the Coast Guard does nothing with uh, Fiddler's Ledge, the aid actually has been assigned to the cutter tackle uh, out of Rockland. Uh, so it is officially one of their aids. But like I said, the Coast Guard is now moving to advertise that they will be decommissioned as long as there's no pushback on that. So, mm -hmm. Do you foresee anybody stepping in to preserve these structures, a structure like Fiddler's Ledge, which you mentioned is not in the greatest of shape at this point? Uh, is that endangered or do you think uh, it's going to be saved by somebody? Ooh, I hope it's saved by somebody. I, I mean, like anything, I, if the Coast Guard decommissions, it's going to be excess property. Do they do something with Fiddler's Ledges similar to what they're doing with Little Mark Island uh, Day Beacon? I don't know. And if that be the case, I think there will be an opportunity for any interested group, hopefully somebody local in the area who 
really does have an appreciation for a structure like that to be able to care for that because it, it's it's not just a day beacon. I think it becomes a, a part of um, anybody who fishes or transits that water. I know the wind jammers that are through that water. It be, it's it gives you a sense of place, and I think it's important that there's only a few surviving day beacons mm-hmm. of this type. Yeah. So hopefully we can carry them forward. I do hope it does have a pathway to preservation. Yeah, they definitely have historic value. They're part of the historic seascape in a place like that. Uh, and again, Little Mark Island is currently going through the National Historic Lighthouse Preserva- Preservation Act process, whereby it'll be awarded to uh, a new steward. Uh, it's a little different because it has a light on top. It was built as a day beacon about 200 years ago. But it does have a light, a navigational light on top, although that has been discontinued by the Coast Guard. But I'm thinking that they kind of saw it as a lighthouse to put it through that process, whereas Fiddler's Ledge, being strictly a day beacon, probably won't go through that uh, NHLPA process, I would guess. You might be right. I don't know. I I, I hope that there is a way, though, that they can transfer ownership, because that's what it's going to require to be able to, that somebody can take it and care for it. Maybe one of the historical societies in that area or something like that, I hope. Uh, You mentioned Drunkard's Ledge Beacon a few minutes ago. Do you want to add a little bit more about that? Yeah, this is one that, uh, you know, historically was built in the 1874 time period. Um, But I've, you know, I've had some personal experience of being on the spindle at Drunkard's Ledge uh, for when I was working aboard the Cutter Tackle from 2007 to 2010. There was a number of times that I was on there and this structure had to be rebuilt during that period of time as well. But it's a really dangerous place. Um, right now, it is one of those day beacons the Coast Guard is trying to decommission. And the locals uh, have uh, enlisted uh, Congresswoman uh, Shelley Pingree to try to advocate on its behalf that it be rebuilt because they deem it of value to at least the local marine traffic there. So, I mean, it's it's nice to see where locals really do value some of these day beacons and, and their purpose there. But uh, when I look back on it, here's an interesting one. So the day beacon was established at Drunkard's Legend in 1874. By 1876, Jeremy, the mm-hmm. Bangor Daily Wig and Courier says that there was there was a petition put forth, and this petition was put forth to uh, to the superintendent of lighthouses at the time by mariners, and they were asking for the erection of one of what they call closes, I'm going to expel that, C-L-O-S-E apostrophe S, closes tied fog bells. I never heard of such a thing, but they were asking for a fog bell, a tied fog bell, so obviously hmm. to be activated by the tide, to be placed on Drunkard's Ledge. And the reason was they said that 27 vessels had been wrecked at this point during the past few years, all which could have been avoided had there been a bell there. Mm-hmm. So that was an interesting story attached to Drunkard's Ledge. Um but a closes a closes tide fog bell. I I had not huh. I'm not familiar with that. Uh, and of course, there was a lot of wrecks on Drunkard's Ledge because that's that's right in the uh, approaches to the Fox Island thoroughfare. And uh, in terms of uh, what this ledge does, it's because of the way the rock rises abruptly. Even on a calm day, the sea will just suddenly rise up and just roll over this. Even if the rock is submerged at high tide and just roll over this area, it's quite. It's quite uh, riveting at times, especially if there's any sea rolling. It's it's horrible during the winter time. This gets so much sea against it, and it's why it's been destroyed time and time again. You'll just see all this ice form on it, and then the sea does crazy things to these spindles. It'll just bend them to the point where they're either bent over, 
And you would think, well, it's not, the diameter is not that. How does the sea do these things? It does. It's just amazing. But uh, I quoted uh, the author L. Whitney Elkins, uh, The Story of Maine, a little bit earlier with Fiddlers. Got one little quote from him in regards to the drunkard. And he he sort of, um, I think, expounds on what I'm saying. Um, quote, suddenly, right beside the steamer's course, the surf breaks and boils over a jagged ledge all awash with foam and known far and near as the drunkard. And as the foaming water momentarily recedes to the lower sea as if swallowed in one gulp, the newcomer cannot restrain the ejaculation. What an old drunkard he is, end quote. And he's not kidding in terms of how that that water there just is, just continues to rise up and just foam up and go past this ledge. So I know there was one day, it was very hard to get on these. You had to come in a, in a skiff to get up onto a drunkard's ledge. And you needed a, a calm day. So we were on it. And even on that day with the two of us trying to establish new day boards atop this beacon, uh, you could feel as each wave went over this rock, you could feel the spindle just vibrate and shake a little bit and sway just ever so. Uh, and it, it was a disconcerting feeling. Uh, you just know that. And I'm thinking to myself, this is a calm day. Imagine this spindle taking the abuse of a heavy sea. And, you know, in Penobscot Bay, we might you know, on a big storm, we might see seas, uh, you know, nine to 16 feet, but it doesn't take much for that place to just go crazy. So um, mm -hmm. it's hard for the Coast Guard. It has been historically hard. It remains hard to keep a day beacon uh, at places like Drunkard's Ledge. Yeah. Well, you're a braver man than me. I would never <laughs> consider climbing a thing like that. So at this point, I just thought I'd mention uh, one more that I've uh, done some research on over the years uh, in Massachusetts. It's uh, People know it as Ben Butler's Toothpick, officially as the Black Rock Beacon, but it's a, it's a day mark, a day, day beacon, I should say, that's located on Salisbury Beach on the northern Massachusetts coast near the mouth of the Merrimack River, right on the mouth of the Merrimack River, across from Plum Island Lighthouse, which is in Newburyport. Uh, there used to be a range light station on Salisbury Beach there. That's long gone. No lighthouses, but smaller, like post lights, uh, a set of range lights with a keeper's house. There was a keeper there. But Ben, ben Butler's toothpick or Black Rock Beacon dates back to 1873 or 1878, depending on which source you believe. But let's say the 1870s. And it's quite familiar. It's a, it's a red slatted pyramidal uh, day beacon on top of a wooden base. I'm not wooden. I mean, stone base, a granite base built of granite blocks. And uh, again, quite, quite familiar around there. You can see it. If you go to Plum Island Lighthouse and look across the water, you can spot it. Uh, and uh, it's named for General Benjamin Franklin Butler, who was quite a character. He was, uh, among other things, a congressman in Massachusetts. He was governor of Massachusetts. For a while, after several failed tries, he was elected governor of eighteen governor in eighteen eighty two. He was, uh, as I said, a, a congressman for a while, and he was an avid sailor. He lived in uh, Newburyport uh, for a while in his life. He was also, by the way, a general in the Civil War, but he was kicked out of the the army for uh, his uh, poor military ability. <laughs> so again, he had quite a quite an, uh, a career, quite a life in the Civil War too. He got the nickname Beast Butler. Because uh, for a while he was put in charge of New Orleans uh, during the Civil War, and he was such a horrible governor for that area, they called him Beast Butler. Um, but he, uh, as a sailor, he was interested in helping navigation in that area in the, in the mouth of the Merrimack. 
And so he had a lot to do with uh, the appropriation for getting that, that marker built. Just one more thing I should add about his life. I made him sound like he was a horrible person, but he also advocated for uh, fair treatment of workers, like in the the mills. He was from Lowell, Massachusetts originally, which is known for its textile mills. And he it was largely because of him that they went from having 14-hour workdays for these workers, including young girls in the mills. He fought and uh, accomplished uh, the establishment of a 10-hour workday instead of the 14-hour workdays. So you got to give him some credit for that. But anyway, so he had this marker built circa 1870s. Now it's just on the beach, Salisbury Beach. It's on the state beach at Salisbury. Uh, near there is a part of the beach that's kind of a, a old amusement park and resort area. But the uh, the marker is on the, the official state reservation there. And if you walk down the beach, it's a nice walk on the beach to, to see Ben Butler's toothpick. But in this case, it's an interesting looking structure. But I think in this case, the story is the the life of the man it was named for, which was quite interesting. I think the uh, the uh, last day beacon I'll mention uh, was Shag Rock Day Beacon, which was located northwest, just northwest of Al's Head Light, and that was established in the 1874 time period, and of course was rebuilt. It was one of these pyramidal wooden structures, so they were slatted, so you had the um, wood poles that would make a pyramid, and then about halfway up they would slat it, and they were usually painted white to make it conspicuous. One of the cool things about this was when it was, uh, it was rebuilt, like I said, a few times, but it was destroyed in the 80s, late 80s. And at that time, the Coast Guard, I know you mentioned a story where the Coast Guard spent a lot of money to restore a a day beacon. They actually rebuilt this uh, Shag Rock day beacon to its historic specs and flew the structure out by helicopter from Mousehead Airport and then had a crew on the rock there to fasten this structure to the ledge, uh, which was no easy task. Uh, And really, because they couldn't insert the uh, wooden legs into the ledge, they actually used almost like an L bracket, but a a much heavier type of uh, L bracket on each leg to secure it to the ledge. And those uh, brackets held. And the structure is about 50 feet tall. It was very impressive. They didn't look very tall, but I know one year we painted that tower, I think it was like 2009, and we had to have a ladder just to get up to the slatted area. And you could put three of us, one over the other, over the other. Uh, this was a very tall structure. And uh, But in a storm in January of 22 here, 2022, it finally fell over. And the storm waves really just washed the superstructure for the most part into the into the bay and onto some of it had landed onto shore then it was floated ashore. Mm-hmm. And this is another one now that the Coast Guard has announced that they are decommissioning. Uh, they will not rebuild. So the era of Shag Rock Day Beacon, which lasted from 1874 to 2000, well, through 2021, beginning of 22, is now over. So it's it's sad. I used to be able to be able to look out the keeper's house and always see that tripod, as we'd call it, standing there. And um, so that little sense of place is now been relegated to history. But uh, still, these day beacons, I think they don't get enough credit for what they did well. And that was they marked spots that could not be marked otherwise. Mm-hmm. They were the sites of shipwrecks. They were the sites of occasional deaths. And uh, they were very helpful to to the local communities and even to the uh, to those steamers and ships that were not familiar with the area. But uh, I think we're seeing 
the end of the day beacon come uh, as far as its value as an aid to navigation, but it had quite a history, quite a history. Nice summing up there. I hope some of them can be saved as historic landmarks or sea marks, oh, me regardless too. of their, their importance to navigation these days. So with that, I think we can kind of wind things down here. Uh, thank you so much, Bob, for this this discussion. It's a lot of fun. And uh, you wouldn't think that uh, these day beacons would be such an interesting topic of discussion, but they they certainly are. They all have their own story to tell, just like lighthouses. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're welcome, Jeremy. I think you said it. They have a story to tell. Um, some of that story is based on those shipwrecks and loss of life, some of its legend and lore. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it's all important, and I think it adds a, a bit of spice good in a good way to our uh, love of lighthouses because we can actually expand our love of lighthouses and find out that the same types of stories that like wreck and and loss of life, unfortunate loss of life, but just how it protected. Lighthouses did all that, saw all that. Well, Day Beacon saw a lot of that same type of things. And for those who are looking for something new, to, to actually dig into historically uh, that relates to lighthouses, I think Day Beacons would be a fascinating place to start. Yeah. You're going to write a book on Day Beacons? <laughs> Maybe one <Seems> day. Like, <laughs> yeah. I'd love to see that. Seems like a good idea. There is a story on the uh, Society website um, that I wrote about Day Beacons, uh, the Anonymous Lifesavers. Um, that is something that is available on the Lighthouse Society website. So. Okay. And uh, if people have trouble finding that, just go to the search box on the front page, uslhs.org. The title of the uh, article was Day Beacons, the Anonymous Lifesavers of the Sea. And that was in the Keeper's Log, volume 25, number two of 2009. It's on the website. If you yeah. see the pictures of the of the different types of day beacons and the bird cages and the pendants, mm-hmm. and, you know, I mean, that's a, that's a resource people can go on for the Society website and find and and it's got uh, pictures of some of the the structures we've talked about and some other ones as well, uh, including one at Palmham Rocks in Rhode Island, right near the lighthouse there on the Providence River, which we haven't touched on. Uh, so that's another pretty prominent and very old one as well. That Palmham Beacon, I always I always find a chuckle because some of the locals have referred to it as the milk jug. So uh-huh. it, these day beacons can come up with some uh, interesting <laughs> nicknames. Yeah, I don't see it looking like a milk jug exactly, but I guess so, if you have an imagination. Anyway, we should uh, wind things down here. So I want to remind everybody again to visit uslhs.org, not only only to see uh, Bob's article on day beacons, but uh, to check out everything the U.S. Lighthouse Society offers, including tours, preservation grants, the passport program, and so on. Uh, And also, I want to remind people, if you listen through Apple Podcasts, please rate and review us. So any final words about day beacons or anything else, Bob? No, I think uh, just thank you for uh, expanding the topics of aids and navigation to Dave Beacons. I think uh, I think it's very appropriate. They save lives. Yeah. Oh, I, absolutely. I'd love to include things that are not lighthouses exactly, but have somewhat of a relationship to them. So thank you again. And to all our regular listeners and our new ones, as always, thanks so much for listening and keep a good light. Let it shine, let it shine